This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. We are in the midst of a series called Paradise Lost, and this is the the first installment, if you will, of a journey that we are taking as a whole church through the Bible, whether you're a kid, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult. And uh, we're taking this, this journey together through the Bible from cover to cover. And uh, we're looking at the same thing at the same time. So, you know, if you're here today or maybe you're listening to this later by podcast, uh, we're excited to be on this journey together. And we're excited to see what God is going to do. Uh, in fact, if you're a little newer to the Bible or to Christianity, uh, this is a great chance to jump in on this because we are literally starting at the beginning. All right, so how cool is that? Um, where I want us to begin this morning, though, is with this, with this simple question. And that's this. When, when what you deserve is not what you want, what do you do? What do you do when, when what you deserve, what I deserve, is not what we want? How do we, how do we handle those moments when we have some problem, some issue, some mess, and it is our responsibility. The consequences belong right here. <laughs> and yet it is the last thing on planet Earth that we want to have to deal with. It's like, you know, cooking spaghetti, you know, at the end of that thing. Who wants to deal with that mess, you know? Nobody. What do we do when what we deserve is not what we want? Uh, when I was a kid, I remember the first time I ever got to, to go to camp, which is like heaven on earth to a kid, right? As, you know, a seven-year-old boy, it was amazing. First time I ever got to go, I, I, I got to go with a bunch of my buddies, and I was young enough where it was still cool for my dad to be my camp counselor. And so, you know, we were just stoked. You know, we're, we're headed off into uh, the woods for this week uh, with a bunch of other churches and so forth. Anyways, we're up there. And about halfway through the week, uh, we start playing a game, the classic game of capture the flag all over this camp. Um, now, if you know anything about seven-year-old boys, you know, they're not real competitive, you know, they, they just give their last full measure of devotion to win whatever game that they're playing, right? I mean, if you want to call that competitive, you know, so be it. But, but so I'm out there, and I, I am playing as hard as I can, right? You know, just running and trying to get that flag and so forth. And there comes a point in this game where this girl is chasing me, and I'm on the enemy's side, and I run up this hill, and I get to the top of the hill, and we're doing, you know, what seventh graders do, uh, you know, you can't catch me, I'm so fast, you know, I'm going to catch you, no, you're not, that kind of thing. When I suddenly yelled this line, this one particular line, and to this day, I can remember every single word I yelled. Now, on the advice of my lawyer, I'm not going to tell you what I yelled this morning because I'm pretty sure that's all you'd remember of my sermon. Um, but, but I can tell you that in the next moment, everything froze. <laughs> everything froze. 
And she looked back up at me and she yelled those fateful words, I'm gonna tell my camp counselor what you said. And I was petrified. <laughs> I was scared. I was ashamed. I, was, I mean, I went running to my cabin, just like, you know, you'd expect a seven-year-old boy to do, you know, running to the safety of the boy's cabin. I bawled my eyes out. I literally packed my bag, rolled up my sleeping bag, and sat on the edge of my bed and resigned myself to getting sent home from camp. Ever been there? <laughs> Ever been stuck with a set of consequences that you deserve, but it's the last thing that you want? <laughs> Ever felt that feeling of being utterly stuck? I know we have. Many of us have been there. We've, we've been stuck right there wondering what it is that we, what it is that we're going to do. Maybe you said something that was wrong. Maybe you, you know, you lied, you cheated, you got caught, and now it's out, out there in the open. And you're going to get what you deserve. Maybe you've blown it with a friendship, a marriage. Maybe you gossiped, whatever it might be. You blew it, and now you're going to get what you deserve. You're going to get sent home, <laughs> whatever that might look like. We do this, whether we're 70 or 77, we experience this. So the question becomes, what do we do when what we deserve is not what we want? What do we do in those moments when we are just stuck? Been there? I bet you have. I want us to take a look at a crucial insight from God's Word this morning that I think offers us help for what do we do when we don't know what else to do here. A, a couple of weeks ago, I got my assignment of what to uh, preach about this morning. And as soon as I got that assignment, I flipped open my Bible and I looked down to Genesis 4, which is where we're going to be this morning. And I quickly realized we're going to be looking at the story of Cain and Abel. Now, the first thought that went through my mind was, great. I bet you nobody knows how that story is going to end, right? I mean, even if you're not, you know, a churchgoer, you probably have come across something about Cain and something about Abel. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably not ruining the story if I tell you that he gets murdered, right? It's kind of like when you're watching the movie Titanic. You know the ship's going to sink. You're just wondering what happens in the meantime. But that's what we're going to be looking this morning. And as I was saying this passage, I was reminded again that this is probably one of the most misunderstood and yet commonly told pieces of Scripture. One of the most misunderstood but commonly told pieces of Scripture. And so I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning. And, and maybe if you're newer to Christianity, maybe you're given like faith a second try. My, my hope is that this morning we can kind of peel back what maybe you've always seen as being a trite Bible story and be able to see something that awakens something afresh in us, something that connects with each and every one of us this morning. So that's my hope as we answer the question of what do we do when what we deserve is not what we want. So I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. Um, in the context here, what we have going on is, is we're picking up the story after creation after mankind has come onto the scene and after sin has entered the world. 
And God, in response to that, has promised to send a Savior. He's promised to redeem people from sin and death, that that's going to happen at some point. And we pick things up in this fourth chapter, which is kind of really part of the, the third act, if you will, of the grand story of Scripture as we enter into this piece of wondering, how is God going to redeem man? And so we pick things up in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And now Adam knew Eve, his wife, which to my five-year-old son, he always goes, that's really good. I'm glad Adam knew who his wife was. Um, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten, I have Cain, right? It's it's, words kind of sound alike here. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was the keeper of sheep, and Cain, the worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn, or the idea here here is is his best, and of their fat portions. That is uh, the best cuts here, if you will, the, the filet mignon of the sheep. And the Lord had regard or acceptance for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He had no acceptance. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. All right, so picture uh, here bitter sorrow. Bitter sorrow is what Cain is experiencing, and anger. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, or its, its desire is, is that it wants to have you, but you must rule over it. So note here, Cain is being faced with our question. What do you do when what you deserve is not what you want? Cain's response is to compare. When he's faced with this moment of what he doesn't want, which is to get rejected, which is what he deserves, his response is to compare. He takes a look at his offering, and he takes a look at Abel's offering, and he realizes, Abel has been accepted, and I have not. He compares. And so he doesn't really get upset with himself, if you notice here, as things follow. He doesn't really get upset with himself. He doesn't really seem to get all that upset with God. Who does he get upset with? Abel. Abel. King quickly realizes in this comparison, Abel has been accepted. Abel got what Cain wanted, and Cain was angry with him for it. Let's see what happens next. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So his response moves on. He moves into murder. He murders his brother. In response to that, God then approaches him. And I want you to know, God approaches Cain much in the same way that he approached Adam and Eve. He doesn't approach him with an accusation He first approaches him with a question. Both times, he approaches him first with a question in God's kindness, in his graciousness, in his mercy. He says says this, verse 9, And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? God's omniscient. He knows exactly where Abel is. 
It's in his mercy that he gives Cain an opportunity to come clean. But what's Cain's response? He said, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can hear my brother saying that. I don't know. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said to the Lord, what have, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive, a wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now pause here. Traditionally, we have translated this passage here all right, as Cain complaining about his punishment. Him saying that it's greater, my punishment is greater than I can bear. But the oldest copies of Scripture, and what most conservative scholars argue for today, and what's footnoted in most of your Bibles, is another word, a word that this is how it's typically translated all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the word is iniquity. Iniquity, or evil, sin. Which means Cain isn't complaining, he's repenting. Cain is not complaining here. He's actually repenting, saying, my iniquity, my evil, my sin is greater than I can bear. So he's been faced here. He's been confronted with the same question for a second time of what should I do when what I deserve is not what I want? He responds here. His response here is informed by the mercy of God instead, by mercy. Instead here, he responds with repentance, with repentance. God does not take his life here, and he responds to that mercy in repentance and resigns himself to death, saying, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Which means, by the way, that the mark of Cain here is actually another act of God's mercy, not a shaming maneuver. And when Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, he settled in the land of Nod. That's the, the land of wandering east of Eden. And we'll conclude with verses 25 and 26. It says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Again, God's mercy being shown here to humanity. For, for Cain killed him. Verse 26, to Seth also was born uh, a son, and he is, was called Enosh. At the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, friends, as, as we look at this passage, it is so easy for any of us, to become fixated, to become captivated by the sin, to become captivated by the murder, right? In fact, that's, again, that's usually all we associate with this passage. All we've ever gotten out of it in Sunday school, you know, was, was that Cain murdered Abel. Murder is wrong. Moving on. 
But that's not what this story is about. This story is not primarily about that. It's not about the sin that's being committed. It is not about the horrendous murder that is happening. It is about the amazing mercy of God. It is about the fact that in spite of murder, in spite of the depths of our sin, God's mercy is deeper even still. That in light of our worst sin, God's mercy is deeper still. And what I want each of us to walk out of here today with, to awaken afresh to, to be captivated by, is the good news that our sin cannot compete with the mercy of God. Our sin cannot compete with the mercy of God. Friends, this isn't just true for Cain. It's not just true for the murderer. It's not just true for us when we don't like mercy very much. It is true and and is being offered to each and every one of us. God's mercy came looking for you and he came looking for me in my worst moments. When I was in the depths of my sin, just like Cain, wanting to cover things up, right? Wanting to move on. Keep anybody else from looking at it. And just like Cain, God's mercy came looking for me, even though it wasn't comfortable, right? Sin gets exposed here by somebody else's goodness. Abel's goodness here exposes Cain's sin. It makes him uncomfortable. Mercy makes Cain uncomfortable, right? And yet, even though love and truth are not comfortable, they are entirely necessary. The writer of 1 John points out that, that this is what Cain is, uh, that one of the things that we can learn from Cain here, saying, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Again here, this uncomfortableness, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. By faith, Abel offers up an offering. He he becomes a type of righteousness here. And oftentimes we want to associate ourselves with Abel. When we don't start with Abel, friends, we start back here with Cain in our sin and in need of mercy. So what does God do? What does God do in this story in response? He shows even more mercy. Even though it's not comfortable, love and truth here isn't easy, he doesn't, he doesn't take Cain's life, even though that's what biblical justice would have demanded. He doesn't excuse his sin either, but in light of the worst that Cain has to offer, God's mercy is deeper still, especially uh, for each of us, since our sin, just like Cain's, demanded death. It demanded a penalty that we weren't too keen on paying. Thankfully, God didn't leave us stuck in our sin. Just like with Cain, the mercy here that's being offered is based upon what Jesus Christ paid for on our behalf. The Jesus Christ, the promised one, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought you and I peace, it was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Your sin and mine. Friends, your sin and mine, it cannot compete with the mercies of God. And that's good news. That is great news for every last 
one of us. So we're back to our question. Back to our question. What do we do when what we deserve is not what we want? Day in and day out. When this question comes up, what do we do? In our passage, we can see that there are two responses being given. Two responses that are being laid out here. The first response is from our sin, and the second response is from God's mercy. Let's look at our sin here. Back to the passage with me. Verse 4, if you will. And the Lord had regard or acceptance for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So how does Cain respond here? Something in his heart isn't right, and so that has led to something being wrong also in his offering, right? If we're following the comparison, Abel offers it in faith, Cain doesn't seem to offer in faith, which is why his offering is better and Cain's is not. There's, there's some kind of lack of faith. There's some kind of hard issue that's going on here that means that what he deserves is to be rejected. And when Cain is faced with our question, his response is envy. His response is envy. The response from sin, at least here, and many times in our lives, is envy. Envy says this, I don't deserve what I want, but you're going to give it to me. I don't deserve that, but that's what I'm going to have, right? Which is the exact opposite of what mercy says. What does mercy say? Mercy says, <laughs> says you deserve what you don't want, but I'm not going to give it to you. This is what you deserve to have, but I'm not going to give it to you. Have you ever noticed, we are so much more, you know, keen on grace where God gives us something that we don't deserve and it's this wonderful gift, right? We rarely seem to talk about mercy, which is when God chooses to not give us exactly what we deserve. We're not too keen on talking about the fact that what we deserved for our sin was punishment. Just like Cain. We're much more, you know, we'd rather talk about the gift that we got instead. We don't get a gift without the mercy. They go hand in hand. The striking contrast is here, though, between envy and mercy. Dor Dorothy Sayers described envy this way. Uh, she says, it begins by asking plausibly, and you can almost imagine Cain saying this, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Envy is a great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. And the words constantly in the mouth are my rights and my wrongs. Friends, it's written all over this story. It's written all over our communities. It's written all over our culture. Envy offers us the same deal that it offered to Cain. And it always starts with, you deserve. You deserve it. And it always ends with the same dissatisfaction, with the same emptiness. A while back, some German researchers came across this issue in a study that they were doing on social media, sites like Facebook. 
In the article by Reuters, they stated, Facebook, the world's largest social network that now has over 1 billion users, has produced an unprecedented platform for social comparison. The researchers found that one in three people felt worse after visiting the site and more dissatisfied with their lives. While people who browsed without contributing were affected the most, they said that they were surprised by how many people have a negative experience from Facebook with envy, leaving them with feeling lonely, frustrated, and angry. Researchers found vacation photos were the biggest cause of resentment with more than half of envy incidents triggered by holiday snaps on Facebook. Social interaction was the second most common cause of envy as users could compare how many birthday greetings they had received with their friends, their Facebook friends, and how many likes or comments were made on photos and postings. They sum this up in their report, Envy on Facebook, a hidden threat to a user's life satisfaction. That's pretty true, isn't it? <laughs> Man. Friends, this isn't just reserved to Facebook, though, is it? It's not just reserved to Facebook. It's all over the place. Even though it doesn't usually, you know, result in us, you know, proceeding to physical murder, it oftentimes can result in us leading to murder of the heart, of hatred, of, I'm not going to be around that person any longer because of envy. Friends, anytime that we decide that what we really deserve is not what God has called us to do or to be, but what somebody else is doing or what somebody else is being, we become captivated by envy. If you aren't sure where to start with this, and you're trying to look at your life and wondering, am, am I envious? Um, if you aren't sure to, where to start, I invite you to ask yourself this one question. When was the last time that I felt depressed at somebody else's success? When was the last time that I felt depressed by somebody else's success? But sure enough, there's an open door right there to envy as we're asking, what do I really deserve here? Why did they get that? Why didn't I? Where we've noticed, uh, in those kinds of moments, maybe where we've noticed that somebody else did really well, or somebody else was really funny, or somebody else was extra talented, uh, and we suddenly shift from admiration, which is good, to comparison, which is a look questionable, to depression. And when we hit there, that, that dips open into all kinds of temptations. The temptation to lust, the temptation to steal, the temptation to make all those little comments and all those little jabs that we found so funny at somebody else's expense. Or certainly our constant and unhealthy comparing of beauty as somebody else steps into a room, all stemming from this deadly sin of envy. And friends, it happens in a moment, doesn't it? At least it does for me. It happens in a moment, in a flash. And some then, sin answers the question this way. 
What do I do when what I deserve is not what I want? It simply decides I deserve something else. I deserve something else. It's as simple as that. Envy decides it deserves something else. That's what Cain did. Cain was captivated by envy of Abel, and it resulted in the catastrophic loss of his satisfaction. And any time that we give way to envy and we experience then the exact same thing, we lose satisfaction. Every time, we will end up the losers. But there's another way. There's another way. <laughs> That's the good news, isn't it? There's another way. Last week, we even started to hear about it, that we are called to be different to be captivated by the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. So how then does God's mercy answer the question? Let's look at God's mercy. God's mercy invites us to answer this question in one word. Repent. When what I deserve is not what I want, I am invited as a child of God to repent. When what I deserve is not what I want, and I would even consider myself a child of God, I am invited to repent. I'm invited to turn and throw myself on the mercy of God. What do I do when what I deserve is not what I want? I humble myself and repent. We see this throughout this passage. The amazing thing that we can see as God's responding to Cain here and responding to humanity and mercy, he exemplifies this in his response to Cain. When he responds to him here, asking about his sin, when he's describing then his sin for him, we see that mercy demands honesty. <laughs> it will not call sin anything less than exactly what it is, sin. And yet then in the kindness and love of God, it is also drawing out this poison to then be dealt with. And that's why Jesus, the seed spoken of all the way back here in Genesis, is the one who, you know, all these seemingly bizarre sacrifices are all pointing to. And that everything is looking forward to as he pays the price for all of sin from Adam to you and me to the very end as he offers up the perfect sacrifice to God. And God's mercy is then offered to us. From one end of this passage to the next, and from one end of our life to the next, the offer of God's mercy is present. Even on our deathbeds. So how do we respond? How do we respond? How do we start with this? My encouragement to you this morning is simply this. Don't wait. Don't wait, all right, to embrace the mercy of God. Our sin, our envy, our pride, it will do everything in its powers, friends, to leave us sitting there to do absolutely nothing about it. That's its number one goal. Don't mess with that mercy thing. That's too hard. Instead, keep your pride. Keep to yourself. Don't bring it back out into the open. Be passive. Sit back. Do nothing. We need to take action instead. We need to not wait in the face of mercy. When uh, my camp counselor, my dad, got back to the cabin, he walked in 
And he asked me one question. Did you say what I'm told that you said? And I said, yes. <laughs> and then he told me that I was going to have to apologize. And then he told me that that girl was standing just outside that cabin waiting for me to apologize. Friends, if there had been a back door, I would have been out it. I, if there had been a bus to Antarctica, I would have been on it. Anything to avoid that humbleness, anything to avoid having to face that person again, anything to avoid having to apologize. Oh, it is hard. Everything in our heart wants to push us in those moments away from mercy, away from doing what's right, away from apologizing, away from humbling ourselves. And I realize many times it is much harder than just having to apologize for something that you should never have said. Many times it is much harder. But to that girl's credit, as I walked out there and apologized, she forgave me, I knelt down, and gave me a hug. It doesn't always work out that way, I know. But we are called to nothing less. Jesus Christ has offered us nothing less than his very best that sin can never compete with. It can never compete with the mercy of God, with the satisfaction that that mercy offers us, the restoration that that mercy offers us. If only we'll take it. And can you imagine if more of us would realize that our sin can't compete with mercy? The, 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 the apologizing that would start, the envying that would stop, the humility that would be shown, the marriages that would be saved, the friendships that wouldn't be lost, the lives that would be saved. As we start embracing and offering mercy, it would blow us away as we awaken afresh to the truth that God's mercy blows our sin away. But it's hard for us to come to terms with mercy, isn't it? We'd much rather insist on getting what's coming to us. Many choose to instead to quietly walk into the arms of hell and to humble, instead of humbling themselves and stepping into the arms of Jesus. So friends, my encouragement today is when what you deserve is not what you want, don't wait. Don't wait. Embrace the mercy of God. And walk away changed as you step into the arms of Jesus for the first time or for the hundredth time. It's worth it. Let me pray with us this morning. Father God, Lord, as we're about to even step into this time of communion, we know that your mercy is present. We know you've offered it to us. And we know it's the last thing we deserve. But we come. Father God, some of us are coming today for the very first time and throwing ourselves at you and saying, Lord, forgive us. Show us your mercy. I see my sin and I repent. God, forgive me. Wash away all my sins. I accept what your Lord Jesus did on that cross that day. I give my life to you. If you prayed that, I want to welcome you into the family. 
And for the rest of us, maybe God's nudged us, spoken to us about a place that we need to apologize and deal with. Lord, would you give us the courage and the heart strength to see that your mercy is the best thing that we can ever enjoy and give us the strength to walk into that situation, wherever it may be, with the humility to apologize as we follow and we truly embrace your mercy and we offer it to everyone else. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach the communion table, it certainly it's a wonderful reminder of the mercy that God has shown us. That same mercy that now calls us to not only make things right with him, but to make things right with one another. My encouragement to you as we come to the table is to take time to examine your heart. And if there's a place where the Lord is nudging you that you need to apologize, to work out things, maybe it's with him, I encourage you to take action on that. If it's not, I encourage you to make a commitment that that's what you're going to do, to examine your heart closely, to invite the Holy Spirit to work, and then to embrace his mercy afresh and to show or go and receive that mercy from someone else.